Good morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue to worship the Lord, as we pray before we come to His Word. Blessed Lord, who cause all scriptures to be written for our learning, would you grant us this morning to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John. We'll be finishing up the I Am kind of a series. Uh, chapter 15, 1 through 8. Again, that's from John chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can pick up the Pew Bible and turn to page 800. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I think many of us are familiar with the name John D. Rockefeller, who probably was one of the richest men who ever lived in history. And when he died, his son, Junior, um, inherited the vast majority of his money. And like his father, John Jr. would also donate a lot of his money to various charitable causes. One day when um, John Jr. was visiting France, he went to Versailles, the palace of King Louis XIV, the sun king, and he was in shock because he noticed the gardens surrounding the palace were in just utter shambles. They weren't maintained at all, so he called the French government because he could And he offered to donate money to restore this garden. And after the donation, the gardens were restored and became beautiful again. I think some, if not many of us, have visited beautiful gardens. And maybe some of us have visited Versailles or somewhere a little more local in Pennsylvania, maybe Longwood Garden of sort, where you saw the plants and its beauty, perfectly patterned, not a bush out of place, 
and just mesmerized by the beauty of this work. Whoever was in charge, and you admire the gardener, at least the main gardener, who envisioned this and the team that worked to make this come into fruition, working hard, vigilantly to keep it. So it is in the Christian life. When our fruit shines forth, the good works, the fruit that we bear by the power of God ascribes glory to the gardener who did the work of pruning and bearing fruit. question this morning I want to ask us is, how are the fruits in your life bringing glory to God? How are the fruits in your life bringing glory to God? I think all of us, deep down, we desire to be fruitful. We want to live an abundant life. There's something natural in all of us that seeks to be fruitful. And in this final I am statement, Jesus tells us that there's only one way. There's only one true way to truly find fruitful life unto the Lord. Now, today's passage is in the context after Jesus washed the disciples' feet and announced his departure in chapter 13. And in chapter 14, he charged them, comforted them to trust him as the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15 here, he's calling his disciples to abide in him. Now, he's actually only speaking to the 11 because Judas, the betrayer, had left him and the disciples to sell him out. And right at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says these words, Rise, let us go from here. So I think it seems logical to assume that Jesus left the upper room at this point and began his journey across the city of Jerusalem, leading ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he and the disciples would pray. This is the last of the great I am sayings, last of the seven sayings. And Jesus spoke these words, ego emi, I am, alluding to the great name of God in the Old Testament of Exodus 3. He's claiming divinity here, that he's the only God. What's unique about this last I am statement, though, is while all the prior six I am's kind of stood by itself, there's an additional assertion. Jesus said, I am the true vine, but in addition to that, he says, my father is the vine dresser or, or the gardener. Yes, the son's role is central. However, the father is not in a mere background. He is doing the work of trimming, pruning the branches that you will see greater fruits. Now, the passage started with, I am the true vine, and it suggests this contrast of false or corrupt vines. Jesus used these words of true, true this, true that, and you can wonder what vine could Jesus be referring to? If he's a true vine, what kind of false or corrupt vines is he contrasting himself with? Well, the vine in the Old Testament was the symbol of Israel. Um, 
Old Testament Israel was portrayed as God's choice vine or God's vineyard. But unfortunately, whenever this kind of a historic um, Israel was referred to with this figure uh, as God's vine, it wasn't in a positive light. Um, it was to point out the vine's failure to produce fruit. And it, with that came the emphasis on the upcoming threat of God's judgment because of the lack of fruit. So when he, we see Jesus saying, I am the true vine, he's pointing, he's pointing that he is the one that the Israel was not able to uh, do. He's the, he, he's the one that Israel pointed to that would ultimately bring forth abundant fruit that it could not bring. Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, Israel is weeping because of God's judgment upon them. They wanted restoration, but Israel is the vine brought out of Egypt, planted in a clearing, and as a result of their sin, Israel is plundered and ravished. And uh, verse 7 and 8 reads, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. And skipping to verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. In Isaiah 5, again, the language of the vine dresser's vine comes up again. And instead of producing good fruit, guess what? They have wild, worthless grapes that are not useful for anything. So all the pruning was wasted. And now any sort of hedges that were put around will be removed and it will be abandoned. Jesus is fully aware of the significance of vine and Israel when he says the final I am. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And today's sermon, I want to just kind of look at three parts. The true vine, Jesus himself, the vine dresser, the, the, vine dresser, the father, and the branches, the two different kind of branches. First, the true vine. Again, in referring to himself and identifying himself as the true Israel, that now people of God no, no longer need this kind of a genealogical descendancy from Abraham, but a true vital connection to Christ himself. That as long as you are truly vitally connected to the vine, you will bear fruit. But not only is Jesus the true Israel, but he is also the true Adam. After all, God did say to Adam in the garden, be fruitful. So if we want abundant life, fruitful life, we can only find in Christ, for he alone is the true vine. Israel, yes, was God's vine, but it was empty. It was fruitless. He's saying, Jesus is saying, he is a source of all blessing, all life. He is a true vine, as he is the true light, as he is the true bread.
The vine of Israel bore no fruit, or if it did, rotten fruit or wrong, wild fruit. And because Jesus is a true vine, it's impossible to think that those who truly abide in him bear no fruit. It just can't be. And let's move to the the vine dresser, uh, the father. Now, the vine dresser, the gardener, has basically two responsibilities. One is cutting off branches that are dead, and the second is pruning, pruning the branches that are actually bearing fruit. Now, besides water, sunlight, the, the pruning process, the cutting off process is what makes the branches actually productive and fruitful. Um, there is a wordplay here. Uh, the, the Greek word for taking away or cutting off, it rhymes with the, the Greek word for pruning or trimming. And also, what's significant is that the word for trimming or pruning that's done to the good branch is, that's the verb, the adjectival form of that same verb is used to describe clean. So to prune is to clean. The father takes away or cuts off any branch that bears no fruit. He gets rid of the dead wood so that the branch that's actually bearing fruit will have more resources, more room to actually bear more fruit. Fruitfulness is a necessary mark of Christianity. There is no such a thing as a no-fruit Christian. Why does the father, why does the vine dresser cut off fruitless branch because it doesn't belong there. It's false. There's no life. And in contrast to cutting off, you have the pruning part. Pruning part that's done to that which bears fruit. It could be bearing little fruit, lot fruit, but either way, it's pruned so that it will bear even much fruit. No fruit-bearing branch exempt from pruning. And this pruning, the purpose is of love and more fruition. In Hebrews 12, it speaks of the Lord disciplining his own the way a father would discipline his children. And all this for our good, that what? We may share in his holiness. The father has responsibility only for the fruit-bearing ones. Real Christians are defined by little fruit, more fruit, or much fruit, but not no fruit. Remember, Jesus, when speaking of parables, speaks of 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, but there is fruit to be seen. Now, I'm told that grapevines require a lot of aggressive pruning. Um, after the harvest, the the fruitful branches are cut back significantly. They remove whatever inhibits growth. And in a similar way, the Lord, the Father, as a vine dresser, he strips away 
anything that deters our spiritual growth and maturation. The Father applies this pruning knife to our priorities and values. Anything that hinders our faith, not as a punishment, but because He loves, because He wants more fruit. God arranges His providential circumstances. And that might look like in different ways to different people, but for some, we might suffer loss, experience reproof, correction. But I think it's important to recognize, because I think we know that trials themselves do not improve us necessarily by itself. It's the application of the Word of God that does the pruning and bearing of fruit. It is the Word of God that has the power to prune, to cut, so that it will bear fruit in our lives. We've seen people who suffer trials and suffering that don't turn to God's Word and wander away. It is only truly the Word of God that stimulates true growth. It is the Word of that, that cleanses us, that chastens us. David asked this question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And in the famous Psalm 119, he responds by saying, by living according to your word. Jesus says to his disciples in this chapter, you are already clean, you are already pruned, you are already cleansed because of the word I have spoken to you. There's nothing else that can cleanse us but the word of God that we come before. Scripture is the agent of our spiritual change and growth. Hebrews 4, 12 reads, For the word of God is what? Living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have to come to God's word expecting the pruning knife of a loving father, the vine dresser, like a surgeon would. Yes, we all long for comforting words at time when we're discouraged. And God offers comforting words, uplifting words that speaks to our hearts. However, we must also seek the truth that will cut away our sin that the kind of teachings that challenges us to examine our hearts so that we can actually grow in holiness as we continually pray every Saturday morning. Some 10 years ago, in a span of like two plus years, I was rear-ended by two different people. And with those accidents, uh, my neck or my back would trigger, especially during winter. Um, and when they trigger, I would go see an acupuncturist uh, once or twice. And maybe for a couple of days, I would suffer. I wouldn't be able to like move my neck, or I wouldn't be able to bend my back. But in a couple of days after those treatments, I will be fully back to my normal self, and praise the Lord. 
However, about a little less than two years ago, like every year, it got triggered. I went to see one acupuncturist, the one that I usually see. He closes shop, so I had to find someone else. I got more acupuncture treatments than I ever did before, but it didn't get better. I saw a chiropractor. I haven't seen a chiropractor like in 10 years, but I saw a physical therapist. And I probably stretched more than I ever did in my life, yet my body never fully returned. What used to just come and go annually decided to stay. I didn't welcome it to stay, but it stayed, and it's still here. And I'm trying to uh, learn what God might be trying to teach me, what he's trying to cleanse me from. And I can't help but find myself coming back to God's word as Apostle Paul. When he cried out, remove this from me, my grace is sufficient for you. And for the past little less than two years, those are the words that I've been pruned with. Paul, is God's grace enough for you without getting what you've been asking for? Without the healing, is God's grace enough? Can you be satisfied and rest in that? And that's what he's pruning me to trust. When we look at the branches, the third part, you know, the true vine, we see the father as the vine dresser. We come to the branches. You have the dead and the fruit-bearing kind. The dead branches, like itself, the name, you have no fruit. These are actually the non-Christians. They profess to know, but they're like the tares. They outwardly and visibly attach themselves to Jesus, but there's no real relationship to him, with him. And as verse 6 says, these are the withered, right, the dead, and they're gathered, and they're cast into fire and burned. The wood of a vine is pretty useless. It's soft. You can't really build anything out of it. It's brittle. Besides the fruit, there's not much other use. Ezekiel actually speaks with this language in chapter 15. It says, How is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch on any other trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make any useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? And after it is thrown on the fire as fuel and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? Not really. In previous chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. He talked about washing them, cleansing them. Same word, cleansing, as pruning, verb form, adjective. And he says, I have washed you. But in verse 10, he says, you are clean, but not all, for he knew the one who would betray him. And therefore, he said, you are not all clean. You see, both of these branches, the dead and that those that bear fruit, they have identity with Christ. But the dead the non-fruit-bearing branches. They approach Christ, but at most, they're plugged in a superficial way, and thus, they don't bear fruit. 
For these, relationship with Christ is merely external, kind of reminiscing of the parable of the sower, the seed that fell on the rock. Remember, heard the word, and it quickly grew, but what happened? Soon withered. And those who hear, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in the time of temptation, fall away. Such people may seem to have a relationship with Christ, but not really because they ultimately fall away. Judas was like that. He was with Christ for many years, but he walked away. And there are those of us here, perhaps, outwardly attached to Christ, you're here. And maybe you're here because of you, you want fellowship, community with people. Or you want to be religious. Or maybe you want to pacify your wife or your husband or your parents. Being in the vicinity around does not make you in Christ that bears true fruit. In James chapter 2, it says, faith without works is dead. And continues by saying that the body without the spirit is dead. So your faith without any evidence, it's not true faith at all because it's actually dead. Friends, there are no such things as a good tree or a true believer that has no fruit. Now, way back in John 6, there were those called disciples who also went back and didn't follow Jesus anymore. Yes, they followed Jesus for a while. They identified with him, but they weren't for real. And they walked away when it wasn't convenient. No one is saved by joining a church, although there's a huge, tremendous advantage of being at a church, worshiping together, where God's word is preached, where uh, the Lord's Supper is given and you can receive, where you can sing together, pray together. But being in the midst of such blessing is no guarantee that you are actually in Christ, abiding in Him. Friends, doesn't this verse make you tremble at least a little? In contrast to the dead branches that bear no fruit, you have the living branches that bear fruit. These are the true believers. Some may have little fruit, and if you have little fruit, what will the Father do? will prune you so you bear more fruit. And if you have a bunch of fruit, he'll still prune you more so you have abundant fruit, much fruit. And these spiritual branches that are pruned are those things that hinder the believer from full productivity. And pruning usually hurts. And yes, God brings trials and troubles because he loves us so that we may actually bear more fruit. No, we are not saved by good fruit, but by faith in Christ alone. The good fruit, however, is the only proof that our confession, our profession of faith is actually true and truly salvific.
You will recognize them by their fruit, Jesus taught. J.C. Ryle speaks of abiding this way, as he kind of describes the verb for abide in being part of the vine. He says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out their hearts to him and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend, to have his word abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and mind and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. To the degree of productivity as a Christian, the degree of productivity as a Christian is directly proportional to the depth of our relationship with Christ. It's beautiful because it's organic. It's internal. And when we are abiding in him, his life and his power infuses us bearing fruit. Jesus wants real disciples, true believers, branches that abide, branches that bear fruit. You know, there are people sometimes that I run into that want to separate the person of Christ. They say they like Christ the person, but they don't like all of his teachings. This is not possible. And Spurgeon speaks of this on this theme. We cannot separate Christ from the Word. For in the first place, he is the Word, Logos, right? And in the next place, how dare we call him Master and Lord and do not, and do not the things which he says and rejects, reject the truth which he teaches. We must obey his precepts or we will not, he will not accept us as his disciples. Jesus continues in verse 7 as he talks about what it means to abide in his word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. What does it mean to abide in the word of Jesus, to have his word dwell in our hearts? And as his words dwell and infuses our hearts, we can ask whatever we wish because it will reflect his desires and his wishes. To abide in him, to rely on him, to keep his words active in our minds, and from there pray unto him. He gives, he answers. And that brings glory to our Father. Maybe you were one of these people, or you, back in your past, or you run into these sorts of people once in a while, thinking that you can be a Christian and not really have to do much work. Repeating, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and thus works are just inconsequential. We can just relax in God's grace, relax, and not do anything. But while we recognize, as a Reformation core tenet, 
that we are justified, justified by faith apart from works. We are justified by faith unto works. The idea of being productive is not an invention of capitalism. It's the mandate of God from the creation, be fruitful, and it's the mandate that Christ gives us when he calls us to be fruitful. I think when you think about bearing fruit, you can think about leading people to Christ, growing in obedience to the law of God, loving his God, uh, loving his word. But at the central focus on the fruit, you come to Galatians 5, where you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, where you see the changed life, changed character, where we become more like Christ. There's a difference between a very fruitful Christian and a less fruitful Christian. But one thing in common, whether you're really fruitful or little fruitful, there's still fruit to be seen. Whether you see 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, the point is that you are bearing fruit. Friends, brothers and sisters, do you see fruit of the Spirit in your life? We should all say yes. We should see more righteousness, more joy and peace, more growing love for God and His people. We should see more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And all of this, this fruitfulness, what does it do? It brings glory to the Father. The fruit that issues out of this obedience, this faith union with Christ, brings glory to our Father. God is glorified when we rely on Christ, when we abide in Him, when we meditate, dwell on His Word, when we pray as His Word teaches us to pray, when we love Him and love one another. That's Jesus' aim, giving glory to the Father. Brothers and sisters, as you examine your life, does your fruit, do you see fruit? Does your fruit bring glory to God? Westminster Shorter Catechism, long ago we started with question one, what is the chief end of man? And it begins by saying the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. As we look to the great I am, may we have courage to examine where we are, but most importantly, whether we are abiding in him, and by abiding in him, bear fruit for his glory. Let us pray. Lord God, there are some of us here by your divine grace, bearing fruit. And the power of that is coming from you. Life-giving power is coming from you as we yield to your word. Lord, may we be bearing fruit for your glory so that when others see, they will glorify you. And there are some of us here who are here 
near the vicinity, yet not truly actually abiding. God grant us the clarity to recognize who we are. And if we don't see fruit, to repent and turn to you so that we wouldn't be thrown out because we're not bearing fruit because we think it doesn't matter how our life turns out, but that truly, by abiding in you, bear much fruit for your glory. I want to invite you to continue to examine your hearts for the Lord.